Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing The Pawn. Do you know what this game's title refers to? Do you know where it came from? You'll find out after listening to this episode. But before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy Headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. It is amazing that this episode is only one, two, three, four, five days late because it is the Winter Olympics. Now, I don't have a preference over uh, Winter Olympics versus Summer Olympics. I like them both very much. I don't know when that started. I was not a fan of the Olympics as a child. I was not an athletic child, but I do enjoy the international competition aspect of the Olympics. I believe uh, last year, you know, the summer Olympics were, came at a strange time. It came at a time where people were not leaving the house very much. They weren't doing very much. And I got locked into the summer Olympics. I was addicted. I was staying up too late, waking up too early and spending too much time every day following the summer Olympics. And it's amazing how quickly I go from not understanding an event or not being interested in an event to being crazily interested in an event. And every year or every time the winter Olympics come around, I should say that really is, I guess, best summarized by my uh, in-depth obsession possibly with curling every year. Now I should say in Oklahoma, I would say curling is not a thing. I did Google curling and there is a Oklahoma curling group. I don't know where they practice that. There must be an ice skating rink somewhere around here where they practice curling. I've never seen curling except for on television, occasionally on ESPN and definitely on the winter Olympics. So when I do see curling, I immediately realize I've forgotten everything. I know that they, uh, you know, when I first see it, I say, well, I know there's a couple of people and I know they slide this thing down and they hit other things, you know, but then, I, you know, after watching for just a short period of time, I'm like, oh, he's got, he's got the rock, the rocks in the hole. He's going, they need a shutout or else Italy is going to overtake France <laughs> and the curling preliminary. I mean, I am so into it. I understand the scoring again. I understand everything about the sport and it's amazing how I just go from zero to a hundred. I mean, when the winter Olympics are over, I will not think about curling for four years, but in 2026, when the Winter Olympics come around, I will be all into curling once again. And that's how I am with a lot of the different events. The biathlon is not something I think about. I never literally think about people skiing and shooting guns. 
That's just not a thing that's part of my life. Ice skating is not part of my life. I'm not really a fan of hockey. But when the Winter Olympics come along, it's all I can do is watch all of these things. Plus, I really do enjoy the big air competition, the skiing, and the downhill, the ramps, the jumps, the snowboarding, all that I really get a kick out of. So have I been staying up too late to watch the Winter Olympics? Yes, I have. Have I been waking up before work to see if there's anything I missed? Yes, I have. Do I understand the difference in time zones? Not really. I don't. I have caught myself being very engrossed in a Winter Olympic event only to hear the announcer say a phrase or have something happen. And then my brain realizes that I have seen this before. Like I've already watched this one, maybe 12 hours earlier. So uh, I'm not too good at that. But I guess if I don't recognize it's a rerun, it's. What's the harm in watching it again? So uh, my life right now revolves around the Winter Olympics, which is uh, strange for me as a guy who's not that into uh, Olympics or sports. But I am into snow because last week we had a winter storm here in Oklahoma. I think a lot of people across the country had winter snow and we had Not that much snow, maybe six inches of snow, nine inches of snow, somewhere around there, which is not a huge amount. If you live in the Northeast or you live in Canada, you're probably scoffing. But I have a problem with my home where I built my workshop and where I built my house. There is a gap between the two that becomes a wind tunnel that car manufacturers should pay me to park cars why did I just say park like I'm Canadian? Park. <laughs> park cars. <laughs> it's all this Olympics I've been watching. Uh, but, I mean, it is an amazing window. Like, you could stand in there, and it's like those videos of people standing behind airplanes when they turn the engines on. Your clothes will flap. Your hair will blow back. Your skin will move. It's just an unbelievable amount of wind. And so what happens when we get snow is I get snow drifts that come through this gap. I have a fence there, but it has not stopped the snow gaps. And the the drifts end up in my driveway on and around my cars. So even though the roads were drivable and you could get in and out of the neighborhood, I couldn't get my car out of my driveway. Now, I should mention that my driveway is pretty long. My driveway is like... From where I park my truck, you could probably park eight more trucks behind it before you got to the street. And so that's, you know, however long, whatever distance that is, and then snow that's two to three foot deep. And I just really don't feel like that. There's nothing I need to get out that badly <laughs> that's worth shoveling that for. So so we spent a couple of days in the house uh, until my son who had come home to visit and ended up staying for three days because of the snow. And Friday morning, he said, I'm sick of this. And he got out and shoveled himself out and left. And I thought, well, and I was parked in front of him. So I thought, there you go. Now I could get out. So, uh, and, and within a day or two, it's all gone. It all melts. We have a little bit of snow left over in the front yard, but that's it. I am spending too much time rambling talking about things right now because we have a lot to cover in this episode. This is going to be a long episode, so if you don't already have a handy brew or a crystal light, as I have here next to me, 
then you might want to grab you a drink and get comfortable because we have a lot of things to talk about on this episode of Sprite Castle. I got some feedback from the previous episode, which was Wizard of War. That was all the way back in January. I got a message from Cantankerous who said, Great episode. I played a lot of Wizard of War on the Atari 2600 growing up. I didn't have too many games, but this was one of my favorites. Plus, for a certain score, you could get a medal. I got the score, but by the time I got a picture, finished the roll of film, and sent it off to be developed, I missed the cutoff date. I still love the game, though. And then attached to the email, he had the entry form that he still has that he keeps with his Atari 2600 manuals. A lot of people remember Activision and Activision having patches. So if you got a high score on your Atari 2600 version of Pitfall or River Raid, you could take a picture. We're talking a literal analog photograph of your television and then mail that, get that developed, mail that to Activision. And if your score was high enough, you would receive a patch. And trust me, there was nothing I wanted more than to have an Activision patch. I never, back then when I was a child, I never legitimately earned a single Activision patch. But Activision was not the only company that did that, which I'd forgotten about this. So that was a nice reminder about the Wizard of War. And that was another thing that kind of jogged this memory that Cantankerous mentioned to me was that in our heads, I would imagine you doing this with a code or a Polaroid, like an Instamatic, you know, Kodak Instant Photo or a, a Polaroid camera, where you would take a picture of the screen, wait for that to develop over a minute or two, shake it, even though you're not supposed to shake it, but we all shook the pictures, and see if the picture turned out all right. And if it didn't, take another picture. <laughs> but sometimes that's not how it works. Sometimes you had this instant camera or these cheap cameras. I always had these cheap cameras that were, you know, you'd put film in and you'd take 24 pictures or whatever. And then you hope, hope they came out. (laughs) You hope some of them came out, hope they weren't all blurry or didn't get ruined when you were developing them or you dropped them off at the, the Kodak stand that was outside of Walmart. That's where I used to get my photos developed. And so, yeah, you know, you would take a photo of your high score. How heartbreaking would that be to take the photo and then get it back and realize it was too dark or something? And also, you had to wait. Now, I remember this was a thing when I was a kid. My dad took a lot of photos around the house. And if there was some event like a birthday or a wedding and he needed the photos, he would burn the rest of the roll of film. He would just waste it by taking pictures of us around the house or doing things And so you might have to do that, even though I think that would be expensive, you know, if you were a kid to do that. But um, what a bummer to take the picture, have everything done, and then realize that you missed the cutoff date by the end of that. So uh, if I had honorary coins to offer you, Cantankerous, I would send you one uh, because uh, I think that's that's quite the achievement. So thanks for sending that in. I did get a lot of short comments about Wizard of War, just mostly people saying they enjoyed the game. And it's definitely a classic. Again, it's one of those, if you have a friend come over It's something that you can hand them a joystick. You can explain how to play immediately and have a lot of fun in two-player mode on that. Let's go ahead and get started with this episode's Kings of the Castle. Right off the bat, I would like to welcome Dave Velociraptor, who guessed that the song on Wizard of War was Edwin Starr's War. 
So step right up here, Dave. We've got a little surprise for you. That's right. It's a pit full of crocodiles. Sorry I had to do that to you, Dave. But congratulations to all the real kings of the castle, which included Dan Creek, Cantankerous, Alan Hennessy, Retro Gaming Bygone, Steve Sharippa, Joseph Sharippa, Edward Smith, Olaf Hope, Bill Spear, and first-time submitter Tad McDaniel. Those are the people that correctly guessed the Wizard by Black Sabbath. So all of those people received in their emails a virtual key to the VIP room in Sprite Castle, and everyone got to hang out with not one but two celebrities we were able to book for the VIP room. One was Ozzy Osbourne, the lead singer of Black Sabbath and the person who sang the song The Wizard. And number two was the actual Wizard of War. Not going to lie, kind of a bad idea to have an open bar and invite both Ozzy Osbourne and the Wizard of War, a person who literally lives to kill people, uh, to the same party. So I got a feeling, I mean, I heard a lot of glasses being broken. I heard a lot of shouting and screaming. I hope everybody survived their time in the uh, VIP room. So hopefully that all turned out. I'll have to invite someone a little less dangerous next time as our guest. But congratulations again to all of this episode's Kings of the Castle. If you would like to be the king of the castle in a future episode. All you have to do is listen to the eight bit song that will play at the end of this episode. It will be related to the game in some way, but not from the game itself. If you recognize that song, all you have to do is email me the name of the song and how it ties to the game that was reviewed. That may be very simple and maybe convoluted, you may have a twisted version. Usually I'll allow those as well. Uh, but all you have to do is email those to me at Rob O'Hara at Rob Be sure to put King of the Castle in the subject line so that Google and Gmail won't gobble down your, your email to me and throw it into my spam filter. And if you are successful, you will receive your very own King of the Castle key. That will let you into the VIP room. So congratulations again to all of this episode's winners. Now let's get into the Commodore news this month. And there is a lot to cover and I did not cover everything. So I really only hit the highlights. Uh, number one, David Hearn, who is one of the patrons, one of my patrons, and also an author released his new book called Escape from the Commodore 64. It is available on Amazon, and I've checked this out. It's a story about a – I guess it takes place in the 80s. It is about a young girl named Sarah and her brother who likes to play the Commodore 64, and somehow Sarah ends up getting trapped inside the computer. So it sounds a little bit like Tron where she gets stuck in the computer. She meets another friend, and the two of them have to battle – uh, to get their way out of the computer. Now, in a conversation with David, he told me that uh, more than 50 Commodore 64 games are referenced in the book. So I think this sounds uh, really up the alley. If anybody, if you're listening to this show, I think you would probably enjoy this. Uh, I looked on Amazon. It looks like the Kindle version is $2.99. If you have the Kindle library, you can get it for free. 
and the paperback version is $9.99. I think I'm getting the Kindle version because it does support the text-to-speech, and so I can drive around and have Escape from the Commodore 64 read to me. <laughs> Just an easy way to consume books. So anyway, if you are into the Commodore 64, which I know you are, if you're listening to this and you enjoy retro style books, this one looks like a really fun uh, book to read. Escape from the Commodore 64 by David Hearn. Next up are two firmware updates. The first is firmware update 1.34 is available for the Kung Fu Flash. If you're not familiar with the Kung Fu Flash, it is a cartridge for the original Commodore 64 that is somewhat of a jack-of-all-trades, I suppose is a good way to say it. It's kind of a Swiss army knife. It it supports, uh, gosh, um, all kinds of game formats, anything that's CRT format, easy flash formats, normal cartridges can all be put on the Kung Fu Flash you can also use it as a utility cartridge. It supports fast load, final cartridge, uh, warp speed, super snapshot five cartridges. Any of that stuff will work on the Kung Fu Flash. Uh, this version improves drive emulation, and it says it improves it to support SID Play 64. It fixes a previous error with mounting D64 images. Uh, it adds some new different support. Uh, it adds types of cartridge formats that it supports. Probably most important, if you are in the United States, like I am, this combines the firmwares for the PAL version and the NTSC version. There were two different firmwares. This began life as a PAL-only cartridge. NTSC was added in an experimental mode. Now NTSC and PAL are one and the same version of the firmware. So if you are in North America, you definitely want to upgrade to this version. Uh, it also adds a simple diagnostic tool, which I think would be pretty useful. If you're playing around with computers that are 30 and 40 years old, eventually something's going to go wrong and having a diagnostic tool is not a bad thing to have. Now I downloaded the update right from the source, which was the future was eight bit.com. So if you want to go there, the future was eight bit.com. You could download the firmware. They sell the cartridge. Uh, I looked and you know, they also sell a diagnostic cartridge, but if you need both of those things, then it would just make sense to just buy this one. So they do sell the cartridge as well. So if you don't have one of those and you have an original Commodore 64, it's a good place to pick it up. Uh, the other firmware update I saw was a new firmware update for the Commodore 64. Or Nope, scratch that. Not the Commodore 64, the C64, both the mini and the full-sized, a.k.a. maxi version. Uh, this also includes the VIC-20, which was their version of, I mean, literally it's all the same computer, just in different cases. A new firmware 1.6.1 has been released. It supports, uh, it adds support to uh, the system for C1351 mice. So if you've been dying to use Geos <laughs> or uh, some mouse drawing program, now you could do that on the C64. It also adds support for four joysticks. Now, the Commodore 64 only had two joystick ports, but some newer games have added support for four joysticks. And so with 
the the system if you add a USB hub and you plug in four USB joysticks then I suppose you could play one of these new four player games it also adds support for and this is in all capitals the mouse and the gamepad now I believe those are the new accessories that will be coming this spring with the Amiga 500 mini so you'll be able to use those natively on the C64 Mini Maxi and Vic 20. And it adds one new game to the system, which is Space Lords, which I believe is a four player game. So you can right off the bat, you can start using that four joystick feature that they added. So if you have one of these systems and you use it, you're looking to upgrade, add some games, add some features, go to the, I think it's Retro Games, gosh, I forget the URL, but search for the C64. You know, and I put all these on the show notes so you can go right to the link, download the firmware, and uh, upgrading is a super simple process. You just put it on a USB stick, and there's a, a menu-driven way to upgrade the firmware. Super simple to do. So let's talk about some games that were released since the last episode of Sprite Castle. The first one is Robot Jet Action, which is a platform game with 35 levels that take place on five different planets. Each of the planets is based on a different retro game. I watched a video of gameplay. I saw one level that looked like it took place on like where Nebulous, where that game takes place. And I saw some other things I recognize. So that's definitely, uh, but the graphics on this aren't just like those old games. The graphics are, are fantastic. It uses this uh, new high-res mode. I wouldn't say new, but it uses a high-res mode. Uh, it just has great color graphics. The music is fantastic. It looks really fun to play. I've downloaded it this morning. I loaded it up. I haven't had a chance to play it a lot yet, but uh, the mechanics are very interesting. You, The button, actually, instead of jumping, fires off your little jetpack. In fact, I, when I saw the name Robot Jet Action, as I played it for a few minutes, I thought, what an accurate name, because you control little robots, uh, and there's a lot of action, and you have a jet. <laughs> so they, they got it all. They covered everything all in the title of the game. So Robot Jet Action, uh, I believe that is a pay-what-you-want Download release on itch.io, so you could go find that. Rogue 64 is also available now for $5 on itch.io. There is a deluxe cart version available. If you are a collector, you just want the cartridge, perhaps, and the box and all those feelies that come with it. Uh, that is available. But if you just want the digital download, you could get that for $5. Rogue 64 is based on Rogue 4K, which is a very small version of Rogue, which I've played that on one of my streams. Uh, and on last month's episode of Like a DOS, I covered Rogue in a lot of detail. So I'm a big fan of Rogue. I was very excited to see Rogue 64 finally release five bucks. Great deal if you like roguelike type games uh, on the C64. Very easy to play, especially with a joystick on the PC version, there's a lot of keys, there's a lot of different things you have to remember, so playing with a joystick on the C64 is a little bit easier. There's a new Arlasoft collection that was released. It is in cartridge form. Now, Arlasoft is a, I want to say a group or a company, but it's mostly a guy who has been porting other Atari games and games from other systems to the Commodore 64, but he has some original releases as well. And he's taken 24 releases and put them all on a single cart image. 
This is free to download. And this guy has added so much enjoyment for Commodore 64 owners over the past year or two. Uh, included on this is the Donkey Kong Jr. Game & Watch edition that he released. There's Freeway. A lot of those Activision titles that he was porting over to the Commodore 64 are on there. Uh, he released Galaga and Galaxian, and those are both on here. And then one of his uh, original games, Paper Planes, which I had not played until I downloaded this image. If you watch my stream from last week, you can see some footage of this. But you fly a paper plane around. You have to pick up these little coins and avoid getting hit by other planes. There's some power-ups that pop up. Uh, it's kind of a mindless – I mean, this is the kind of game – like I think they used to call this like a bathroom game you know, on your phone. Like this is something you would play for two minutes and uh, you know, maybe you'd play it while you're on the phone waiting for somebody or something. I don't know. But it's kind of just a mindless, fun little mini game. but it's actually pretty addictive. And I could see some friendly competition between friends seeing who could get the highest score. But anyway, all those games are included on this one image. Uh, you could go look up Arlasoft over at itch.io, find the free download there. Uh, great addition for any Commodore 64 fan. I saw a game called 8-Bit Slicks. Now, I have covered this game, I'm sure, in the past. I know a year or so ago I played this, but I did see an updated version that was recently released. 8-Bit Slicks is a four-player racing game. Now, if you just play locally, it supports one or two players, plus you could have CPU players. Uh, I don't know if it supports four human players. Maybe I'll have to try that on the C64 with that new four-player USB support, but 8-Bit Slicks also supports online play. So if you have a friend somewhere else that wants to play, you guys can play over the internet and race one another. So 8-Bit Slicks out there, check that out. A new version of Puzzle Bobble was released. This is the classic Taito game. I used to play Puzzle Bobble on the Super Nintendo when it was new. I used to play Puzzle Bobble on the PlayStation. I had a version of it on the PlayStation. I actually owned a Puzzle Bobble Neo Geo cartridge for my Neo Geo arcade cabinet. I'm a big fan of Puzzle Bobble. This is the puzzle style game where the top part, it's kind of the, the game board almost looks like an inverse of Tetris. The, instead of blocks, there are bubbles and the bubbles are at the top of the screen instead of the bottom. And you, I believe you are Bub and Bob from the classic bubble bobble game have a little machine that will launch bubbles up. And once you connect three bubbles of the same color, they will disappear. Plus if there are other bubbles hanging off that and gravity deems it, so they will also fall to the ground. So it's a super fun game sports one or two players. It's very, very good looking and very good sounding. Uh, someone put a lot of work into this. So if you're a fan of puzzle bobble, if you just want to show off the C64 to somebody, this is a game that will do it. It's fantastic. And it even has some little, I won't give away surprises, but if you're a fan of the Neo Geo, the sounds, the logos, things like that, I think you'll get a real kick out of this release. I saw two emulator updates. Vice, which is the emulator of choice for me on Windows. Uh, Vice has been updated and Z64K has also been updated. So if you use either of those emulators, you might want to go out there and check and look for updates. I also saw a new release of Combian. Now, Combian 64, 
This is version 353 that has been released. This is an image that runs on the Raspberry Pi. You could download the image, and when it's done, you could tell it what version of Commodore computer you wanted to boot into. So you can set it to boot directly into a Commodore 64, uh, Commodore 128, anything like that. It runs Vice 3.5. It says that it also works on the Pi 400 computer. So if you have one of those small Pi computers and you want it to boot directly into Commodore 64 mode, I think this would be a great image to use. Now, I'm not entirely sure of all the differences between Combian 64 and BMC or the bare metal C64, which is what I have on my Raspberry Pi. I believe Combian 64 is built on top of a Raspbian Linux image, so you still maintain all the features of Linux. You still have network connectivity. You still have, uh, you know, any of the options like that that you would also want uh, on a Raspberry Pi. On the BMC 64, you don't get any of that. It is literally Vice that has been recompiled to run bare bones on the Raspberry Pi. So there is no underlying Linux system. I believe BMC 64 was made to be cycle accurate or as close as possible. The Commodore 64 Museum, which has been pitched in New Zealand. This is on Kickstarter. The project was listed by Justin Mitchell. Justin Mitchell is trying to start a Commodore 64 Museum in New Zealand. He has his plan on Kickstarter. You could go out there and look. Now, I will say that it's the Kickstarter looks like it's about halfway through, and so far, Justin has only reached 2000 out of his $67,000 that he is requiring. He does seem to have a good plan. He wants to buy a portable building. He wants to put it on his own property, which you know takes out rent, takes out some of the other questionable things one might have when it comes to starting a museum. So it seems like he's got a good idea, and I believe New Zealand has a fairly unique history with the Commodore 64. I think the problem he's probably running into are all the people everywhere else that say, I'm not ever going to be in New Zealand, and so this is not the horse I'm going to back. That doesn't mean there can only be one museum somewhere, so uh, I, I, I hope that he succeeds because in the end what he'll be doing is preserving Commodore 64 history. And I think that's a good thing. So best of luck to Justin Mitchell. If that's your kind of thing, if you want to go uh, support Justin on Kickstarter, uh, you can look up on uh, Kickstarter. His account is Commodore museum. That's pretty straightforward. So you can go check out uh, Justin's plans and goals in the future for a Commodore 64 museum in New Zealand. And finally, a friend of mine sent me a link on YouTube to C64 Dreams 0.45. C64 Dreams is a project that is probably most similar in design to Exodos. So if that doesn't mean anything to you, what I mean by this is that C64 Dreams is a collection. I believe it uses LaunchBox as a front end. It is a... What's the word I'm looking for? It is a curated collection of Commodore 64 games. So the Commodore 64 has a huge number of games, but it also has a huge number of crap. 
just being honest with you. I mean, there are when they say there are 20,000 or 30,000 titles, that includes basic games. That includes games that are broken that you would never want to play. It, it includes a lot of garbage. And so what they've done with C64 Dreams is they have gone through and pick the best of the best. I think right now the collection has about 3,000 games. Now, each one of these games is configured to launch into DOSBox in the correct ratio with the joysticks configured how they're supposed to be. So really, this is a no-nonsense, no-knowledge-needed way to play and explore Commodore 64 games. In fact, in the front end, they also have Commodore 64 magazines and some other things like that. So uh, the plus side of C64 Dreams, it seems to be very easy to install and very easy to use. Once you've installed it, it's just like Exodus. You would pick the cover of the game you want to play, double-click the game, and it will launch. The joysticks are ready to go. Everything's ready for you to play. You should have a great gaming experience. When you're done, you exit out of that. And go back to the menu. Uh, the downside, mm, mm, well, one thing I would say is that you're limited to what games he has added to the system. It's kind of a closed. I mean, when I say closed system, I don't mean I don't know that you can add your own to his system. So if you have custom games or games that you enjoy that are not in that list of three thousand games, then they won't be there. Now I know he's. He says in the video that he's working on adding other games. So, um, I, you know, I think for people that are into Commodore 64 emulation, I think we're all past what this has to offer. We all have our own personal solutions set up. I have a Mister. I have a real Commodore 64. I have the Ultimate 64. We've been down all this. I have the BMC. Blah 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 blah. Uh, so I have the ways that I enjoy to play Commodore 64 games, and I have. Uh, Assembly 64 and other systems that call and download all Commodore 64 games. So for a person like me, and maybe for a person like you, we're already past that step. But for somebody that's just wanting to get into Commodore 64 gaming, or as I always like to say, somebody who had a Commodore 64 30 years ago, and they want to dabble in it, but they're not into emulators. They're not into configuring Linux. They're not into all these little hurdles that we've built in our little hobby that sometimes we have to overcome before we get to the part where we play games and have fun. Then this might be a great solution. So I'm going to keep one eye on C64 dreams and follow its development and see uh, how things go. Now, this is the part of the show where I normally list the question of the week. If I have a question that comes in from one of my uh, Patreon supporters, But instead, if you'll remember on the previous episode, I asked people to send me their memories of playing text adventure games because the game we're going to be talking about is a text adventure. So I got several. I'm going to read a few of those on the air. The first one I got was from Dave Velociraptor. Dave says, text adventures are really important to me. I've been playing them since before I had a computer. The first text adventure I played was in book form, a choose your own adventure. And then even bigger impact was fighting fantasy. The latter having a bit of an RPG twist to them. Uh, So I looked up these fighting fantasy. They were bigger overseas than they were here in the U S but essentially they were choose your own adventures where you also kept track of your own stats 
so it was kind of Dungeons and Dragons, but a one player version. So it's very interesting. Of course, Dave says that he graduated eventually from those books to playing text adventures on his computers. But at the end of the eighties, he tried something briefly that rocked me forever mist. Now that's not M Y S T. This is mist, which was a popular mud. Then he explains muds were online text adventures with varying levels of RPG elements. He started playing them in 1989 at school, but it wasn't until he got the internet around 1994 that he got properly sucked in. He played MUDs for 16 hours a day and then explains that MUDs were what things like EverQuest and Ultima Online and World of Warcraft were kind of based on, except for they were all text. Anyway, he says as uh in regards to his favorite text adventure, it might be Infocom's Wishbringer, and not because it's an especially good game, but because I worked it out by myself without cheating and because it's pretty good. You know, that is something that we really take for granted today, our walkthroughs and cheats and things like that, that back in the day when we were playing text adventures, it was not uncommon for you to get hung up and either stop playing the game for days at a time or weeks, or maybe never go back to it. You might hit a spot in a text adventure that stopped you from ever progressing. And then you just moved on to another game that I have talked about in the past. Uh, the Rambo text adventure where at the beginning of the game, in about two to three moves, you would get killed. And it happened to me every time and over and over and over. And there was something specific you had to do. You had to take off your parachute and then you had to hide it because apparently the uh, enemy soldiers were seeing your parachute and that's how they knew where to, where you were and how to come find you and kill you. But it was those type of games where you would do uh, try a hundred things and only get three moves into it. It was very frustrating. So nowadays... A lot of people enjoy playing text adventures by simply downloading the walkthrough and going through the entire game, being told what every command is and reading the text and experiencing the game. But back then, we didn't always have that. And so, yeah, I, I totally understand uh, the pride that would come from actually beating one of these games from beginning to end. So thanks, Dave, for sending that in. Uh, the next comment I got was from listener Rick Reynolds who said his favorite text adventure. It is very hard to pick, but I'd probably have to go with Zork 2. I played that game for months and only had bits and pieces of hints from friends to use. I was so proud of myself when I solved a couple of the puzzles completely on my own after weeks of being stuck. That said, even though I love text adventures, I've probably only played 30 or so of them and only finished around 10 to 15. So there may be modern games that I would like more than Zork 2 if I put the time into them. Well, a couple of things here. Number one, beating 10 to 15 text adventures is pretty good. I mean, I know a lot of people who played a lot of text adventures and didn't beat that many games. Zork 2 is definitely a classic. Zork 1 is good, but it's it was old. You know, it was very elementary. And so Zork 2 took, I'm not not uh, disparaging the original Zork. Zork's a classic. But it took some of those things and enhanced them a little bit and made a bit deeper of a game. So Zork 2 is a great game. Uh, if push comes to shove, if you say that's your favorite text adventure, that's definitely respectable. 
Uh, listener Bill Spear says, as far as text adventures are concerned, of course we played Zork, by far a favorite of my dad's. We also played a number of other Infocom titles, Leather Goddess of Phobos, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Planetfall, and Suspended. To be honest, without clues or hints, we never solved any of them. <laughs> Again, that's a common theme. Uh, but they were so much fun. I also got a copy of Farmer's Daughter, but I found it lame compared to the Infocom titles. I also got a book from the school library called Golden Flutes and Great Escapes, which was written for the TRS-80. Our school had tandy computers, so it made sense. Anyway, that book got me into understanding the parser and game layout. Then I began to write my own game on the C64, but never finished it. It was shortly after that that I tapped into what the SID chip could do, and that changed my life. In the last 10 years, I found the C64 version of that book and enjoyed flipping through it. I'm rambling. Sorry. Well, that's okay. I ramble all the time, Bill. There's a text adventure app that I have on my iPad called Frots. If you are not aware of it, it is worth checking out if you want to see what is out there. I have not played with it in a while, but it is fun. Well, so a few things to unpack from Bill's message here. First of all, he mentions how much he enjoyed all those early Infocom games. Infocom was the de facto standard. Uh, they set the bar. They were the best at writing text adventures. So if you only played Infocom games, you were doing okay. <laughs> that, that was still pretty good. Uh, Farmer's Daughter is a game that I played on the Commodore 64. It was a game, you know, that kind of that immature, dirty kind of game. You could guess what the goal of Farmer's Daughter is. And most copies of Farmer's Daughter that you downloaded also came with all the commands you were supposed to type to beat uh, Farmer's Daughter. Not to actually beat the Farmer's Daughter, but to win the game, <laughs> I should say. I got to clarify that. Um, but, uh, you know, when you played games like that, like Farmer's Daughter and some of those other games, you realized how polished Infocom games were. You know, all it took was playing a few text adventures that had rough parsers or poorly programmed, you know, in regards to verbs or logic and things like that. And you quickly realize not just how bad some of those games were, but again, how good uh, Infocom was. So the other thing is that a lot of these old text adventures can be separated into two parts. One is the game engine that runs the game. And the other one is the game code that sits on top of the engine. So what this allowed old programmers to do was they would develop an engine and then you could just change the code on top of it and then you would have a new text adventure. So you didn't have to rewrite an engine from scratch every time. And so Frots is one of those games or a, a, an engine for modern systems where it will play a lot of the old style games. And so uh, Magnetic Scrolls, there is a engine for that. We'll be talking about that later on in the program. And Frots is a good one. It's available for not just the iPad. You can download it on your computer. And so you can play old, all these old uh, Infocom games or other type games. You can just download. They're very, very, very small. And you can download them and play them with those modern engines. Uh, finally, nope, we got two more. One is... Uh, from Tad McDaniel, who said, my favorite text game is probably Suspended. That's another Infocom game. There was a lot of challenge in managing the robots and keeping as many hapless colonists alive as possible, though it seems I didn't succeed though through the most optimal route. But 
through a bug that was in the early versions, like the Commodore published one that I had, uh, it was fixed earlier, or through merciless sacrifice of my robots at the end. It was a tough game, so games like Planetfall and Hitchhiker's Guide are good, too. Uh, before I go, well, let me, okay, that's the end of uh, uh, Tad's comment. I do want to mention a lot of people have a lot of fond memories of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is an Infocom game. I played it, but I didn't understand it because I had never read the book and I didn't understand a lot of the humor or the jokes or what I was supposed to be doing. Now, later in life, uh, actually, when I moved to Spokane and I was in an apartment for a month with nothing to do, I read all, uh, I would say all the first uh, three, four books in the series. Uh, and I thought they were hilarious. They became some of my favorite books. And when I revisited that game, it made a lot more sense, and I found it a lot more enjoyable having read the books. And then, of course, we had the the uh, Hollywood movie that came out. Um, gosh, I don't remember when that was. 2000s sometime. Um, but if you're more familiar with Hitchhiker's Guide, you will enjoy that game uh, a lot more. And finally, uh, Steve Sharippa says... We didn't play many text adventures as kids. It was only much later when I started being interested in them. I played graphical adventures like Zork Grand Inquisitor back when I was in college, but not pure text. Since then, I've tried a few, mainly through uh, being inspired by the podcast Eaten by a Gru, which is Carrington's podcast. That's Carrington and uh, uh, Kay, I believe, is is who do, does that show. And they go through, they play Infocom games uh one per episode is fantastic uh if you like uh text adventures at all it's two great podcasters talking about old games can't go wrong with that um let's see where was i at there uh they are cataloging yeah all of infocom's text adventures i will have to give the game you're planning for sprite castle a try i've been meaning to learn how to make one myself I have a small one made up for my kids that we have done in person with me as the parser. It would be great to learn with. Well, uh, there are lots and lots of engines out there now, languages designed to help people make text adventures. I started with Inform, and Inform 6 is the one I started with, which if you're familiar with scripting at all, if you've ever done PHP scripting or gosh, visual basic or, you know, any kind of, of scripting like that. When you look at, uh, inform six, you'll immediately recognize it. You'll get it right off the bat. Uh, inform seven is more object oriented. I think they tried to change it. So it wasn't as complicated to be more, uh, human type language, like personal language. But to me, that's more confusing. I'd rather mess with things on the code level. So, but Inform 6, Inform 7, there's a language called Hugo. Uh, there are all kinds of languages out there. And if you want to do a choose your own adventure style game, I know Twine is the most common one, but if you Google those terms, there are tons and tons. And Twine will let you create a choose your own adventure style game and save it as an HTML file, which you can put on a website and anybody that has the URL can go play your game. So there are lots of programming languages out there for making interactive fiction or text adventures. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and create your own parser. Somebody's already done that hard work for you. Now, the person who got me into programming uh, text adventures and interactive fiction is a man named Rob Sherwin. Now, Rob Sherwin is a very good friend of mine. He has been writing interactive fiction games since uh, the late 90s, 
and uh, I've played all of his games. He's got some really uh, great games. His next to most recent one, I say that the game before his current one was Crypto Zookeeper, and it's almost like an RPG. It it is a text adventure, and you move around a town, and you have to find little things, but what you're trying to do eventually is make your own army of cryptids and you can find a DNA mashing machine and you can find DNA from different types of animal and put one in the left, one in the right, and you could create your own cryptids and then build an army where these cryptids can go out and do battles and stuff. Uh, but it is all text adventure again with graphics, you know, still pictures that you could look at and uh, a lot of fun, but his, newest game is called Jay Schilling's Edge of Chaos. Now, that game is available for free download. You could go download it, play it. Uh, I've played it. I beat it. It was a lot of fun. Rob Sherwin is one of the funniest writers out there. His his stuff is hilarious. Um, but he has started moving these games onto Steam. Now, what's the advantage of playing one of these on Steam? You know, if you don't want to have to install those engines like I talked about and download files and move things into folders and and launch maybe command line things and get all that to work, that all works. Uh, And if you want to do it for free and you like doing that stuff, it works great. Sometimes, though, it's a lot easier to just get something on Steam for a couple of bucks, double click it, have it open up and be done with it. You know, that's what I did with Rogue. Uh, you can play Rogue on ExoDOS, you can play it in DOSBox, but they have it on Steam for a couple of bucks. And I double-click on it, it opens up into a window, it plays perfect, no configuration, it's just easier. And so uh, Rob's latest game, Jay Schilling's Edge of Chaos, is on Steam. And I said for everybody that sent a response in, I would put into a drawing. There's a few other names here in the drawing. Uh, but, uh, this is, these are the ones that, uh, I decided to put in to read, but I have done a random drawing and the winner is Bill Spear. So Bill Spear, congratulations. You have won a free code for steam to download Jay Schilling's edge of chaos. So I will send that to you through email and, uh, congratulations to everybody who plays text adventures. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> Oh boy, what a bunch of news. I told you it's going to be a long episode. Now, if you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you would like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scene blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that's at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And those, boy... Are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy who just threw a newspaper and knocked over my chessboard. Awesome gosh. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. When I think back to playing games as a kid, 
I think about having snacks that I could eat with one hand. <laughs> I don't know why, but there was something about text adventures and playing games at the computer where you could eat food with one hand and still poke out commands with your other hand and continue to play. And one of the things I used to make as a kid was a microwave quesadilla. Now, quesadilla is pretty simple to make, and it's pretty simple to eat with one hand. You would take a couple of tortillas, which my mom would always have in the refrigerator. You would put, you know, maybe a slice of cheese, um, put a slice of ham, something like that. I always have a little picante sauce on the side or on top, and then you would uh, put it in the microwave for 30 seconds or a minute and uh, cut it into quarters, and then you'd have your own little quesadillas. And so I definitely remember playing computer games and text adventures uh, while eating quesadillas sitting there at my computer. Now, as I mentioned on the last episode, I've changed my diet up a little bit, uh, but I still do enjoy uh, the occasional quesadilla, but I made some this time with wheat tortillas, low-carb wheat tortillas, which aren't the end of the world. <laughs> they're not exactly as I remember the ones from my childhood, but they're not bad. And I put some cheese and some chicken, and I've upgraded my salsa. Now, I do like paste picante uh, salsa, especially the, the medium hot and you know chunky style salsa. I liked all that stuff as a kid, and I like it now, but we've upgraded a little bit. There's a farmer's market that's not too far from me, and there's a lot of people that sell homemade salsa, and that stuff is just so good. So I happen to have some uh, salsa right from the farmer's market, and that's what I had with my wheat based tortilla quesadillas. But again, you know, there's a key to making them and it's that you spread everything out enough so that you get a bite of everything and every bite, you know, you get meat, the cheese and sour cream. If you've got it, sour creams are good and, and, uh, the salsa, but you want to get it, you know, something in every bite, but you don't want to get so much on there that you can't just pick it up with one hand, uh, because you still, you know, need to be able to type. Speaking of typing, The Pawn was published for the Commodore 64 in 1986 by Magnetic Scrolls. It is a game for one player that uses keyboard controls. Now, this game was developed by Magnetic Scrolls. They were a British software company that was based in London from 1984 to 1990. They were founded by Anita Sinclair Ken Gordon and Hugh Steers. Uh, they all began developing for the Sinclair computer, but quickly saw the appeal of other machines like the Atari ST and the Amiga. So they quickly secured a publication deal with Rainbird, who helped get their games onto those platforms. Now, one thing I had always assumed was that Anita Sinclair one of the most famous pictures I've seen of her is with Clive uh, Sinclair and the Sinclair computer who they also developed for the Sinclair computers. But Anita Sinclair is not related <laughs> to any of those people and has no actual tie, I believe, to the Sinclair computer. I guess it's just a coincidence, but I had always assumed uh, otherwise. Now, I read an interview with Rob Steggles, who worked on The Pawn, who said at its height... Magnetic Scrolls had around eight salaried employees, plus there were several freelancers that did work for the company. Uh, their largest competition was Infocom, 
but there was a difference. Infocom was based in the United States and Madnetic Scrolls was based in the United Kingdom. So they didn't really see each other as direct competitors. In fact, in this interview, it said that they were very friendly towards one another. And when the guys from Infocom went to the UK, they actually stayed with the guys from Magnetic Scrolls and vice versa. So it seemed like if there was real competition there, it was friendly competition. Um, Magnetic Scrolls released The Pawn, which was their first game in 1985. They also did Guild of Thieves, Jinxter, Corruption, Fish, and Myth. And their final game was Wonderland before um, things really fell apart. Uh, we haven't done any Magnetic Scrolls games on Sprite Castle before, and I don't know that we've done, surely we've done some games that were published by Firebird. Um, this game was written by Rob Steggles. Rob Steggles is listed as an author of The Pawn, Guild of Thieves, Corruption, and Fish. He was 18 years old when they wrote The Pawn. Hugh Steers and Ken Gordon developed the programming engine that was used, and they called it LTHAM, which they say stands for Extra Low Tech Highly Ambiguous Metacode. They were also working out of LTHAM in the UK, so perhaps not a coincidence. Um, so they used this their own engine, and the way that it worked is Rob Stiggles brainstormed and worked with the guys to develop puzzles and then put the puzzles together into some sort of narrative form. And then Hugh Steers and Ken Gordon did the actual programming. So this is an interesting way to go about creating interactive fiction. One person doing the story and two guys doing the technical side. Now, before we get started, I must confess that that music is from the Amiga version of the Pawn, and the reason I have used that is because the Commodore 64 version and most versions of the Pawn do not have music. <laughs> so I had to borrow a little bit from our older 16-bit brother to have some music in the transition there. Uh, the Pawn is a work of interactive fiction in which players must ultimately escape from Karovnia. Karovnia. I always want to say Karovnia. Karovnia. Completing multiple tasks and interacting with various characters along the way. The game is text-driven accompanied with high-resolution graphics. This game is specifically listed as interactive fiction. Now, for a long time, there has been a debate over what is the difference between text adventures and interactive fiction. Text adventures were, in the early days, games that only consisted of text were called text adventures, and the emphasis in those games was on solving puzzles. Uh, when the stories began to develop into 
you know, stories, fiction type stories, they begin to shift to this other term, interactive fiction. So I believe interactive fiction probably applies to the style of writing and the style of game. But there's no definitive answer as to what the difference is between text adventures and interactive fiction is. There are places that will tell you that there are definitive definitions that explain what the differences are, but not all of those places agree. Uh, so this game was marketed as a work of interactive fiction. And I looked and I wasn't sure if I could find any other versions uh, of games that used interactive fiction on the cover before the pawn. And there may have been some, but this was directly marketed as a work of interactive fiction. And so that term implies that it's not simply typing go north or get coin or, you know, climb rope that, that there's more to it, that there's more to the story and there's more to the parser and the way that you interact with the game. Now this game was originally released for the Sinclair QL in 1985. This was the first system that the pawn appeared on and it appeared without graphics and so after Magnetic Scrolls landed their publishing deal with Rainbird, uh, they were convinced to re-release re, 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 re <laughs> the game, but add graphics. And so it was essentially at that point released for every home computer, including the Commodore 64. This is a game that was known for its exquisite graphics. We're going to talk a lot about the graphics as we get into this game. For the box and manual, the front of the box is iconic. It says the pawn at the top, and it is written on a scroll that stretches across the top of the box. In front of you, there is a wizard. We will talk about who that wizard is later on. There is a demon or possibly the devil in the background. He comes up in the game. You can see a castle, which is part of the game, and you can see a guy carrying a princess and some other small details. So all of those things come into play in the actual game. Now, underneath the artwork, it says trapped destiny of good dot 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 or evil. I think this was a tagline that did not catch on. Nobody mentions that tagline. Everybody just calls this the pawn. Uh, so I, it, it's funny because if you mention that line to people, most people don't know what game it came from. But that was kind of a subheading that's listed underneath the artwork. Uh, it then says this is a rare species of illustrated interactive fiction by magnetic scrolls. And then underneath that, you see the Rainbird logo right in the bottom center. Now, the back of the box, like a lot of games, uh, goes into some detail about what the game is. So let's take a look at the back of the box. Now, right off the bat, you will see three really beautiful pictures. The first one looks like the devil sitting in a throne with a sickle laying next to his throne. There's also a picture of the princess and a picture of the outside of the castle. Uh, across the top, it says the pawn by magnetic scrolls. And over the pictures, it says man years in the making. The pawn is already acknowledged as a classic. Well, okay. I mean, if you say so, I don't know how you could say it gave us a classic when it was just released, unless maybe they're, they're quoting, uh, uh, reviews of the Sinclair version that had come out earlier. 
Kursk. But then it says, set in the mythical world of Karavnia, this amusing and complex tale is subtle enough to appeal to the beginner and hardened adventurer alike. A revolutionary text handling system allows input of complicated sentences and complete interaction with characters, including some very intelligent animals. The pawn represents all of its characters and objects as if they existed in a real world, storing complex information about their attributes and properties linked to their particular position or context in the game. Your objectives are manyfold. The simplest is to escape from Karavnia, but you will find others as you wander around the land and communicate with the characters you meet. The pawn combines a rich text adventure with stunning color graphics and a language parser that will set the standards for years to come. And then there are a couple of quotes. It says adventures will find the pawn a delight, which is a review from the Sinclair version. The pawn is a staggeringly clever adventure from popular computing weekly. And then long live King Eric and the pawn from Sinclair user. Uh, so the back of the box tells us what we need to know that it is going to be a text adventure, but you're also going to have graphics that you can look at. These graphics do not appear to be from the Commodore 64 version. You can see the little drop downs that appeared on the 16 bit versions. Um, yep. And it says down here, right at the bottom screenshots from Atari ST version. So, uh, I'm so used to the Commodore 64 versions, uh, being the de facto graphical standard that appeared on boxes. So it's always funny when, when you see a different computer's version being used on Commodore boxes. Uh, inside the box, we get the game that comes on two floppies. We also get the pawn guide and the pawn gameplay. We get a fold-out poster of the front cover artwork from the game for the pawn. There's a uh, addendum. There is a bug sheet. There is also a 60-page novella called A Tale Karavnia by G. Sinclair. Now, G. Sinclair is uh, Anita Sinclair's sister who wrote a 60-page novella. Now, this novella serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it is an entire story about the land of Karavnia. It introduces some of the characters. It gives you a bunch of background about what's going on. But... It also includes the hint system, which you may need or definitely will need to beat this game, or you would have back then. It also was the copy protection. So if you recall the old copy protection scheme where players were asked to look up a certain word on a certain page, it came from this novella. So without the novella, you would not have been able, unless uh, you got a cracked copy, you would not have been able to play the pawn. And apparently they got all kinds of magnetic scrolls, got all kinds of calls from people claiming that their novella had been lost, that the dog had eaten it, it had been dropped in a bathtub. And uh, they would definitely not tell you <laughs> any of the words from specific spots on the game itself for that reason. Um, when you load up the pawn, on the 16-bit versions on the Amiga, I believe on the MS-DOS version, you're greeted with a, uh, a high-res graphic simulation of the artwork that's on the front of the box. That does not exist on the Commodore 64. On the Commodore 64, the game opens to a wall of green text. For a game that relies so heavily on graphics, 
this is a bad first impression of this game that you're just hit with a wall of text explaining to you, uh, who you are in this game, where you are and what's going on, which by the way is not very much. You aren't given very much information. In fact, uh, the game tells you that you have awakened in this strange land. You don't know who you are, where you are, what you're supposed to be doing. And the only thing that you do know is that there is a silver bracelet on your wrist, which cannot be removed. The goal of the game becomes removing that bracelet. Although that sounds <laughs> a lot simpler than it actually is. Uh, at this uh, opening screen of the game across the top, you get your current location, which was common to provide in text adventures. You get your current score and how many moves. And so text adventures and interactive fiction, basically you're scored in two ways. Number one, every action that you, uh, not every action, but many actions in the game, you're rewarded with a score. So if you solve a puzzle, if you do something you're supposed to do, your score will increase. But so, so the first goal would be to get a perfect score, to do everything in the game that you're supposed to do. But the second thing is to do it in as few moves as possible. And so that is why you're also being uh, given how many moves you have played in the game. Now, I always talk about controls and you think, well, in a text adventure, isn't it just typing? And it is, uh, you know, you have your, your parser command prompt where you enter what you want the game to do, what you want to, uh, move or where you want to go or things you want to manipulate, but it does have some nice features, uh, left and right arrows on the Commodore's keyboard will move the cursor one character left or right, but up and down will jump the cursor one word left or right. So if you type a long sentence and you look and you have a typo at the very beginning of the line, you could quickly jump back to the first word and correct that. You can also do the right bracket, uh, actually uh, the greater than symbol. You could do the greater than, and it will bring up the previous thing that you typed. So if you type a line, there was a typo and you just want to correct that you could do greater than the last thing you type will pop up and then you could go back and correct it. So that it's pretty handy. And this is more advanced than a lot of text adventures had at the time. Most text adventures didn't even allow you to repeat the last thing, uh, things that we're used to by just hitting the up arrow on the keyboard, things like that in, in DOS or sub command line. Uh, again, pawn is really known for its highly detailed graphics and these graphics are displayed every time you go to a new location. On the Commodore 64, that means a lot of loading. You, I mean, if you think the loading time on this episode was bad, it could be 30 seconds to a minute for these pictures to load, and then they have to slowly scroll down the screen, and you look at them, and that turns the game into... Uh, the, the screen into 90% of the screen is this graphic. And then you have just a few lines of text, two or three lines of text at the bottom. It makes it very difficult to play the game. And I want to talk about this more later in the show, but it's ironic that the, the thing that this game is known the most for also hinders the gameplay the most. Um, so when you first play the pawn, you want to see these graphics. You want to go to different places. You want to go to different locations and see the wacky characters. You want to see the countryside, find the castle and those sorts of things. But 
it really slows down the gameplay. And so because of that, there are some graphics modes built into the game. Now, you could type graphics on or graphics off. Graphics off will just turn those screens off. There's also a mode called graphics brief, which will, instead of taking up the whole screen with a graphic, will just show a small thumbnail version of it on the upper right-hand corner of the gameplay. So it loads much more quickly, and as you're moving around, if you don't need to see those detailed pictures, and I'll be honest with you, there's very little in the pictures that actually help you with the game. Everything that you need is in the text of the game. It's not in the pictures. So seeing them is a nicety, but it doesn't really help you advance in the game. You could also type graphics normal, which will show you the big picture the first time you go to an area. And then if you type look, it will reshow the big picture. And then you could do graphics verbose, which is, when you go to an area the first time, it shows you the big picture. And then every time after that, it just shows you the cameo version, the little thumbnail. Those are also built into the Commodore 64's function key. So F1 turns pictures on and off. F3 turns the picture uh, cameo mode. F5 scrolls the picture up, like the full-size picture will scroll it up off the screen. And F7 scrolls it down. So there's a lot of different ways to manipulate these large pictures. Uh, other than that, you'll get the more prompt quite a bit as you're typing or receiving text. It will pause and say more, at which point you'll have to hit a key for the text to keep scrolling. And you can save your game, which you need to save your game. If you're starting out playing this, you need to save your game maybe <laughs> every screen. Uh, this is a game that loves to kill you. So you'll want to save a lot, and then you can type restore. Now, Modern Interactive Fiction, or IF, has a undo and so you can type undo and and it will revert back to the move right before you got killed. Uh, but this game does not have that option. So once you're dead, if you haven't saved the game, you will be starting over. Again, uh, disc loading. This is what I wrote. Ay, ay, ay. There's so much disc loading in this game. Uh, it's really slow. And you would think a text adventure would go fast because... You wouldn't have all those graphics, but this is a text adventure with graphics, so it's the worst of both worlds. Uh, it's a game that makes you think it should play fast, and it plays very, very slowly. There is a lot of loading in this game. Uh, even with a fast slow cartridge, it just doesn't tend to speed things up here. Now, one of the advertised features of this game that was mentioned on the back of the box was its advanced parser. This is was one of the game's biggest selling points and also one of the biggest contentions that players had with the game. There are, if you think back to those old text adventures, the original text adventures, like the old Scott Adams and uh, those type of games only supported a two word parser. It was go North or fight bear or, you know, go whole <laughs> those sorts of things. Right. So the parser on this game said it will take a complete sentence, go to the hole and pick up the key. And it would say, okay, great. The problem is if you don't put things in the format that it's looking for, it's very easy to confuse the parser. It doesn't always understand. There's a, an example I found where there is a potted plant 
and it is a pot plant and you have to plant the pot plant in the plant pot. If you type it exactly like that, which is an amazing sentence in a text adventure for something to recognize, it says, okay, but if you say it in the wrong way, if you say put the potted plant in the plant pot or something, it won't work. If you try to do it in the wrong order, if you try to do it differently, different verb, it doesn't work. So it's almost like a magic trick where it breaks down very quickly. If you, you know, it's like you're pulling the sheet away, you're pulling the curtains back and revealing the engine uh, when you do things wrong and you see the way, like if you use the word and, like do this and that, and it just drops it or, or just doesn't handle things properly. So it was more advanced than the old text adventure parsers, but in a lot of ways, it just made things worse. <laughs> it's hard to explain until you've played the game. So as the game begins, you will wake up in Karavnia and you pretty quickly have an encounter with the sorcerer Kronos. Now, Kronos is the evil wizard who appears on the front of the game. And so we quickly find out who that is. And he gives you a note that you must deliver to the king. As you, after you deliver the note to the king, if you even get that far, uh, the king reads the note and kicks you out of his castle and kind of drops you into this world where it's difficult to know what you're supposed to be doing. So there's a lot of wandering around in hopes of meeting people who will tell you, either send you on a quest or tell you they need an object. And so it's a lot of that. It's a lot of that type of game where you have to go get something and give it to someone else and they will give you something which in turn will help you with the next and so on and so forth. Um, ultimately your motivation is to get back home. And if you wander around the land far enough, you will find a dotted red line, which is a border and you can't cross the dotted red line if you're carrying any possessions. And since you can't remove the silver bracelet that has magically appeared on your hand, you can't leave. And so that becomes the game. How do you get this bracelet off your hand so that you can cross the dotted red line and leave this game. Uh, none of this really makes sense. There's a snowman who doesn't talk. There's a guy named John, the honest trader who will eventually give you something. If you give him coins, which you won't find for a long time. And then when you find the coins, good luck finding John, the honest trader again. Uh, there's a guru of the Hills. Who's a pretty famous character that appears in the game who laughs at you. Um, so all these characters have something to offer and all these characters have a quest for you to perform. A lot of the humor in this game is self-aware humor. The, the example a lot of people give is that King Eric is about to be replaced by this dwarf and his campaign promise is he mentions a few things, but one of them is to rid dungeons of mazes of any sort. And it's kind of this joke in for these types of games that there's always a dungeon that always consists of a mage uh, or of a maze. Um, th there's another part in the game where there's a, a poster and it has a, an REM command, which was a, a remark in basic. It says rim. This is where the character falls into a pit or something like that. Uh, and, and so it's this kind of joke, like the, the programmers have left a note on the wall that says, oh, don't forget to kill the character here, you know, that sort of thing. So there's lots of jokes that remind you that this is not supposed to be in a real 
place that it is supposed to be in a place that's parroting the types of places where these games come from. Now, if you're not an experienced interactive fiction or text adventure gamer, you could do a lot of wandering in this game and never find what you're supposed to be doing or where you're supposed to be going. Uh, it's not very good, at least in the early parts of, of nudging you in the right direction. And, and you, so you can spend a lot of time wandering around and just not making any progress. Uh, if that happens, you might want to resort to this hint system. So the hint system comes from the back of the manual and for different parts and puzzles, there are hints and they are listed in code. And so those hints have to be typed in and they're not easy to type in. <laughs> they're very long and convoluted and you have to type them into the game and then it will tell you a hint and each hint for each puzzle. There are three levels of hints no, they're not even, I mean, most of them are not helpful, not until you get to the third level of hint, you know, um, it, like when you go see the guru, he's laughing, but there are hints. Why is the guru laughing? You know? And so if you type in the whole first code, it comes back and says, ask him, not me. Well, well I already did that, you know? And, and so you have to go through all these layers of hints and the hints, some of the hints, almost tell you the opposite of what you should be doing. Like it's almost a joke by the programmers. Like it's not a good hint. So the, the hint system, if you're planning on using that to get through the game, I don't think it's going to get you very far. Now, as I mentioned before, this game's biggest selling point at the time was its graphics. If you look at magazine ads at the time, if you look at the box, that's what was being pushed. It says it's interactive fiction and it's a advanced parser, but at the end of the day, it's these great graphics that they were pushing. But again, the problem is that the graphics, number one, aren't really necessary for the gameplay. And number two, they slow it down to the point where it's almost unplayable. Uh, and so I think one of the biggest problems the pawn had right out of the gate is that it sold a lot of copies of a game to people who wouldn't like that type of game. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, you know, if when I was a kid and I saw the pawn and I saw these ads for the pawn and the graphics looked amazing. So I was surprised when I booted it up and found out that it was a text adventure. So I suspect a lot of other people had a similar experience, uh, you know, as a kid, the advanced, parser, which is the other selling point, which is listed on the back of the box, uh, is not as advanced as it, as it pertains to be. I kind of mentioned that already. Like as you start using complex, you know, in, in old text adventures, there was a problem where you could only use two, two, like a noun and a verb, right? Like I mentioned, go North. But what happens when you have two keys, like a blue key and a red key? And you say, get red. And the game would say, get red what? Uh, oh, because red's not a noun. So you say, get key. And it says, which key? Blue key or red key? So it was this weird limitation to the engine that made doing what you, I mean, obviously what you want to do is pick up the green key or the blue key or, or whatever key. So this does alleviate some of that. You could say in this game, get the blue key and it would be fine. Um, but like I said, 
it's it's almost to the point where it's over oversold. <laughs> so it makes you think, oh, I don't have to pay attention to the way that the parser works at all. And then that's not the case because then the game just stops understanding what you're trying to do. There's a lot of problems with this game. Uh, since I'm on problems with the game, uh, one of the game's problems is that there are parts of the game that require you to use a verb that has never been mentioned in the game before. There's no allusion to the word and it's not a, a word or a verb that's commonly used in text adventures. For example, uh, to pry a piece of wood up off of a floor in one place, you can use the, the verb lever like L E V E R. Uh, maybe that is common vernacular in the UK, but not in the U S I've never in my life used lever as a verb. So I would never get that. Um, so, and, and there's like, sometimes in a text, like in a hint, it should say, maybe you should lever something or something like that. Like help me out. But there's nothing, uh, that does that, you know, uh, another problem with the game is that from a narrative standpoint, it really lacks cohesiveness. It's a series. It's all, it feels like now I'm, I'm not qualified to judge this being a, uh, an American from Oklahoma, but it feels a lot like British humor. It feels like Monty Python kind of non sequitur humor, like going into a passageway in a dungeon that leads to hell and running into Jerry Lee Lewis and then having him want, you know, to give you an item or something. I mean, that feels like that kind of Monty Python, that non sequitur humor. Like it's funny just because someone thought it was funny. Like there's a snowman in the middle of the summer that doesn't talk to you that you have to deal with. Like, I don't know why he's there. Why is that funny? I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's in jokes that I don't know. I feel like they thought a lot of these things were hilarious and I don't understand why they're supposed to be funny. Uh, so what it comes off as is just weird. It just comes off as a, a series of things of jokes that somebody else thought was funny that I don't get. Um, I mentioned this briefly, but another problem with the game is that uh, it loves to kill you. It loves to put you in positions where you can't win. It loves to do things to you. It it doesn't – well, first of all, it's to separate these things. There's two separate things. One is just insta-kill. And you know what? That was kind of a thing of the era, so you can't necessarily blame it on the game. It's not fair, but that's what games did. That's uh, Text adventures were notorious for killing the player uh, and not because you did something like it uh, – What's a good example? Like if it said, hey, here's a vial here, might be poison, I don't know. Well, if you drink it, then you get what you get, right? <laughs> like the game kind of warned you. But sometimes this game kills you from going into a room. You walk into a room and it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't have gone in there on a Tuesday. You're dead. Like, how do you, you know that? There's no way to know. So it just kills you for no reason. You know, it, it's very uh, uh, unfair, that, that style uh, of killing. But also... The game doesn't play fair in other ways. And, and one example is there is a wooden bowl. Now, the vernacular in a text adventure is get an item and drop an item. So if you there's something, if you want the key, you type get key. If you don't want the key, you say drop key. Okay. 
well, there's a wooden bowl. And if you get the wooden bowl, great. And if you drop the bowl, okay. But then if you get the bowl later, whatever, what you find out is that you broke the bowl because you dropped it. You didn't just set it down. You, you know, you actually broke it and now you can't use it. And now the thing that you need to do with the bowl, you can't do. Uh, that's not fair because the term that people have learned their whole lives when playing text adventures is drop bowl. If you have an item and you want to get it out of your inventory and set it on the ground, that's what you would type, drop bowl. So, no, I didn't literally mean climb on the highest thing I could find and drop a, a bowl. I'm, I meant just set it on the ground. So that sort of thing. That's that's really not fair. There's a In one of the articles I was reading – it stated that there's a in the puzzle it's in the puzzle with the levering up the loose uh piece of wood that's on the floor it's a, it's a plank that's in the floor and it tells you that there's one that's loose but you can't lift it so you enter this room and you try every single thing that you can do and you can't lift this piece of wood even though that's clearly what the game is hinting that you should be doing and so you guess every verb. Can I lift it? Can I pry it? Can I pick it up? Can I get it? Can I shuffle it? Can I shift it? None of those things work. And so what happens is that because you entered the room, the door is open and the door is over where the piece of wood is, which is why you can't pick it up. So if you close the door, then you can move the piece of wood. But the game never says that. It doesn't explain that that's why you can't pick up the piece of wood. So if you like if you were in a room right now and you tried to pick up a piece of wood off the floor and it was stuck under the door, you would immediately know that. You would say, oh, I can't pick it up because it's stuck under the door. But the game never gives you that feedback. So it's it's cheating in a way where it's not giving you the feedback that you should get. If you were there in that room, that's something you would know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just not fair. It, it, the way that it's programmed is not fair. Now you could say, oh, well it's because it, it's an advanced type game and, and maybe it is an advanced type game, but even if it's an advanced type game, that's not fair. That's not a fair way to, to treat players. Um, and then I, I touched on this, but again, the inventory system, sometimes when you drop objects in this game, or sometimes you can't go places because you, you're holding an item or you can't climb somewhere because you're holding an item, but it, it doesn't really tell you what's preventing you from doing that. And the game, you know, one of the things that they advertise is that all the objects are like real world objects. So they have a weight, they have a, you know, a space that they take up. And that's all well and good, but if you don't cover the basics in your game, then all the advanced stuff just becomes moot. Like, that's great that you have a system of checks and balances for how many things I could carry, but if you're cheating at the other end, if you kill me every time I walk into a room, then who cares, you know? So I'm going to circle back around and talk a little bit more about magnetic scrolls. Now, magnetic scrolls uh, release several text adventures, and there was... Uh, kind of a, what would you call it? I don't know. Just an irony, I suppose, in that each of their games got a little better. So Guild of Thieves is better than the pawn. Jinxer is better than uh, the pawn. Uh, Fish is really good, one of their later games. So the games kept getting better, but they were pushing, they were too late. 
they were past the prime of text adventures and interactive fiction. So even though the games were getting better, they were selling fewer and fewer copies of each game. I mentioned on last month's episode of Like a DOS that Rogue, Epix's Rogue, which came out in 1985, was a fantastic game, but the arcade version of Gauntlet came out the same year. They both came out in 1985. So one game is a 16-bit top-down dungeon brawler, you know, where four people can play, and the other one is drawn with ASCII characters. <laughs> like, if you put them side by side, very few people are going to pick Rogue to play over Gauntlet. And this is the same problem that Magnetic Scrolls had. They had these text adventures, and they added graphics, which made them look more attractive. But at the end of the day, these are text adventures that are coming out in the late 80s. Uh, this game was uh, 86 and, you know, through the early 90s. So this is not, you know, I mean, if you think about think about what arcade games you were playing in the early 90s and and uh, on the home computer market, text adventures just were, were not able to compete. Now, there's a whole secondary story about magnetic scrolls and how Anita Sinclair had a uh, working relationship with the uh, president of Rainbird, and apparently she was difficult. This is, you know, hearsay or, or from from articles I've read. Not I have no firsthand knowledge, of course, but that she, apparently she was somewhat difficult to work with. And uh, when Rainbird was purchased by Microprose in 1989, they immediately dumped Magnetic Scrolls. Uh, which, among other things, stopped the company's income because they were not selling games anymore and they didn't have a distributor for their future games. So that was a big problem that Magnetic Scrolls had to overcome. And we'll talk a little bit more about the future of Magnetic Scrolls later on uh, in the program. The score for this game, the maximum score is 300 points. So I've watched some walkthroughs on YouTube and it doesn't seem impossible. You could get all 300 points in uh, somewhere around 300 to 350 moves. So that's uh, definitely obtainable. Now, on one of those walkthroughs uh, or a playthrough, I watched someone beat the game. Now, at the end of this game, and this is going to spoil the ending of the game, although this is not a huge spoiler, uh, you are, defeat Kronos. You have to deliver his soul to the devil, and in exchange for that, the devil will remove the silver bracelet, and you are free to leave. You find a doorway, and as you pass through the doorway, you end up in the room where the programmers have been working on the game. And they have a note that they have left temporarily, but they leave you a piece of paper with a debug code. And if you type in the debug code, you are replaced into the game, but in a mode where you can't die. So now you can continue to move around the game, but you can't die. But that's the ending of the game. Uh, that's terrible. <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. That's terrible. Interactive fiction. If you're selling interactive fiction, then people want a story. And this is so far from interactive fiction. There is no cohesive story to this game. It's 
just a series of puzzles that you're supposed to complete. And that's great. But they push this angle of it being an advanced type of fiction. And it's not. It's definitely not as cohesive as the Infocom titles and other text adventures that were available at the time. So the ending of this game is, I mean, I I think it's garbage. I think it's one of the worst endings. I mean, it's worse than just a screen that says congratulations because it doesn't even say congratulations. I know it's a tongue-in-cheek type of joke that it's it's almost, it reminds me of, uh, and I think I read this. In fact, I did read this at the end of uh, Rob Sherwin wrote a review of The Pawn, and he said it reminded him of the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and that's what it reminded me of, where all of a sudden it's just over and, you know, they break the fourth wall and the, and that's the end of the game. And it's that's not a fulfilling ending especially to a text adventure that you've may have put in, you know, uh, may have put days or, or weeks or possibly months into trying to beat. So I did not care for the ending of this game at all. Um, I did not read all of the novella that came included with the game. I read a little bit of it. I found a review of the game and it said the pawn comes with a novella. And then in parentheses, it said, not good. <laughs> so that's unfortunate. <laughs> but again, you needed that novella sitting there uh, on your nightstand or next to your computer so that you could look up the copy protection and continue to play the game. So uh, now here is something very interesting about the pawn. I looked up old reviews of the pawn. The review that's written on Lemon 64 rates the pawn 10 out of 10. The review from Commodore user is 100%. The review from Commodore computer and video games is 98%. The review from Zap 95%. 64 is 86%. The lowest review I could find was Computer Gamer who gave this game 85%. Uh, Lemon 64 has an aggregate review. That's all the reviews combined. The votes of uh, 8.3 out of 10. This game received very, very high reviews. Now, why is that? I don't know the answer to this, but I can speculate. I suspect number one, people reviewed this game based on what they were told. They were told that it was an advanced parser engine. So that gets a check. They reviewed the game based on those stellar graphics. The game does have great graphics. So you're being told, okay, it's a text adventure. It has an, an advanced engine. It has superb graphics. What What's not to like? And perhaps reviewers played it didn't get very far and then wrote it off to them not being good at interactive fiction games and still gave the game a high review. Modern reviews of this game are not as friendly. Uh, the digital antiquarian who wrote a couple of articles about this game, and I'm, I'll mention him towards the end, said that it has some of the worst puzzles he's ever seen in a text adventure. That opinion is shared by many people. So it's very interesting to me that this game got such high ratings 
at the beginning and is so uh, not adored as a game today. It's it's very uh, it it took a steep nosedive. Perhaps that's the best way to say it. Um, the review on Rock Paper Shotgun, who reviewed an updated version of the game said, quote, it's not good, but sometimes fascinating. And that's possibly the best review I've ever read of the pawn. It's not necessarily a good game, but the way that it's put together and some of the puzzles is all, it's almost like looking at a train wreck. It's hard to explain. Uh, it, it's almost, if you're into those type of games, it's almost worth playing just to experience the oddness that must've went into the creation of this game. Now, as I mentioned almost an hour ago, <laughs> this game was first released on the Sinclair, but without graphics. And when Magnetic Scrolls got their publishing deal with Firebird, they decided to redo the game and add those uh, high-definition graphics that the game is well-known for. It was ported to the Acorn, the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the Atari 8-bit, the Atari ST, DOS, the Macintosh, and the ZX Spectrum, and, of course, the Commodore 64. Now, after releasing multiple text adventures and watching their sales go down and down, Magnetic Scrolls decided that the problem was with the way text adventures were being presented to gamers. Of course, it would have been difficult at that time to ignore point-and-click adventures. Now, Sierra had been around for a long time at this point, but uh, Magnetic Scrolls thought perhaps by changing the way that gamers played interactive fiction might increase sales. So they spent a lot of time and money investing in a new engine, which they called magnetic windows and magnetic windows is a gooey style interface for playing their games. It allows you to do things like click on common verbs or drop and drag items, uh, onto, you know, a way to, uh, inspect items or to handle items, things like that. And they used it on one of their final releases, uh, which was Wonderland, which was a game based on Alice in Wonderland. And then they re-released their first three games, which the pawn was one guild of thieves and uh jinxter. And they re-released those games using that original, uh, their new engine. So they re-released those, under the using the magnetic windows engine and called those the magnetic scrolls collection. That was in 1991. It did not save the company. There's been a lot written about the magnetic windows, which apparently was really sluggish. didn't run good on modern systems. You had to have a really upgraded system to run. And, uh, it, it's weird, you know, probably from a technical standpoint, it's probably very, uh, impressive, but gamers want a good gaming experience. And if that's not good, then everything else is secondary. Uh, so magnetic scrolls filed bankruptcy. They, you know, folded, they fell into the background. They disappeared for many years until, uh, a company called strand games came along and strand games was uh, founded by a gentleman who runs a, a memorial site, which is dedicated to magnetic scrolls and 
some of the original Magnetic Scrolls employees. So they got together, they formed Strand Games, and what they did was rewrote some of their old games so that they would work on modern touch operating systems like cell phones. And so the Pawn Remastered was released in 2017. I just checked. It is still available. I checked iOS. I don't know if it's still available for Android, but uh, I'm an iPhone guy. So it is still on the uh, iTunes store or on the App Store for $2. And so you can play the game, and they've updated the interface to make it much more uh, enjoyable on a you know phone-type interface, a touchscreen interface. So uh, there are s- several other titles released by Strand Games. And I think it's, that's a, it's not unique, but it's a definitely an interesting story. I love when programmers go back and rescue their old, uh, IP and, you know, re release it, remold it into modern. I know that they did that with, uh, uh, Jordan Mechner did that with Karatika. He updated it to run on, you know, in a, a new interface. And, it, you know, there's been examples of that over the years. And I always like that because I think those games are good. I just think the interfaces are dated. And so now whether or not you think <laughs> the pawn is good and deserve the treatment uh, could be uh, uh, up for debate. If you would like to own an original copy of the pawn, I was surprised to find how inexpensive it will cost you. I found copies on eBay with shipping for about $35, and that's for U.S. Uh, boxed copies that were complete. They had the discs, the manuals, the poster, and the novella. You could get all those things for about $35. I did see higher copies, but there were several in the $30 to $35 range, uh, so definitely not uh, unobtainium. You could get a copy and put that on the shelf, and I mean, if nothing else, sweet poster. And now let's get into my personal memories of playing the pawn. Well, I remember seeing advertisements for the pawn in magazines, and like everybody else, I said the same thing. This has amazing-looking graphics. Uh, when I got the pawn, and when I say the got, I mean I downloaded. When I downloaded the pawn, I was surprised to find out that it was a text adventure. In one way, I would almost, I mean, the games are totally separate, totally different. Uh, not gameplay is not the same, but I would almost compare it to defender of the crown in the sense that defender of the crown sold copies based off of still artwork. I know so many people that bought defender of the crown based on the photo of the trumpeters, uh, which is not really a part of the game. I mean, it's just a still picture a graphic that appears in the game. And a lot of people bought the pawn or downloaded it like I did because of those graphics. And so that's really my memory of playing the pawn. I was not a good uh, gamer when it came to text adventures or interactive fiction. I got bored easily. And if I couldn't make progress in a day or maybe two days, I moved on to the next thing. So I remember playing the pawn. I moved from area to area. I looked at as many of the pictures that I could get come up. And when I couldn't get past the very opening, 
I moved on to something else, which is a little unfortunate, but also consider the age. Uh, you know, when the pawn came out in 86, I would have been 13. And there were so many other gaming options available at that point in time that unfortunately, other than those graphics, the pawn did not uh, hold my attention. Now, I later in life experienced a resurgence of, uh, I, ju I just refound text adventures and I've played a lot of them over the years, a lot of the old ones and a lot of the newer ones. And I find the pawn mostly to be, uh, somewhat entertaining. There's a lot of, I would say British humor, but more than that, I just find it frustrating without a walkthrough or cheats or something to tell you what verb, uh, to type or, or where to go or what you're supposed to be doing. I, I would never beat this game. There's no way I could beat this game. So I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I, I respect its position in history, but it's definitely not a game that I would go back and play for enjoyment. For graphics, I give the Pawn 5 out of 5 silver bracelets. It has some of the best graphics you will see on a Commodore 64 game, especially from that era. For music, I give it 0 out of 5 bracelets. There is no music contained within the Commodore 64 version of the Pawn. For sound effects, it also gets 0 out of 5. There is no sound of any kind in Commodore 64's version of the Pawn. It's a missed opportunity for sure. For overall gameplay, I will give the game 3 out of 5 silver bracelets with the following caveat. If you don't typically play or enjoy text adventures or interactive fiction, you should probably subtract one point from that score. And if you love these types of games, maybe you should add a point. But in a game where graphics don't matter, the Pawn is one of the best-looking games ever released on the Commodore 64. Its humor and logic may not appeal to everyone, but those who love interactive fiction or simply punishing their brains may enjoy giving the Pawn a go. Before I wrap up this episode, I want to mention a few websites. There is the Magnetic Scrolls Memorial, which is msmemorial.if-legends.org. Uh, I will add all these links to the show notes. Uh, but the Magnetic Scrolls Memorial is everything that has to do with Magnetic Scrolls, uh, including the games, interpreter, all the background information, interviews, anything to do with the company or these games, you can find there. The second shout-out is to the Digital Antiquarian, which is www.filfre.net. Uh, this guy writes professional quality articles, has been writing for many years, and has a few different articles dedicated to the pawn and magnetic scrolls. So if you want to find more information, check out the Digital Antiquarian and search for the pawn or magnetic scrolls. And finally, a shout out to Trotting Crips. This is a website uh, for interactive fiction game reviews, and I referenced Rob Sherwin's review of the pawn, and that is trotting, T R O T T I N G, K R I P S dot com. Uh, and you can find reviews to lots of different interactive fiction games on trotting crypts. Thanks again 
for tuning in to another long episode of Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All patrons of my shows get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, like You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flack, Throwback Reviews, Multiple Sadness, and Like a Doss, visit podcast.robohara.com for links to these shows and more information. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to rescuing princesses, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Last but not least, here's a very special shout out to all of my Patreon supporters. For February 2022, this includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Kerry Clanton, Chris Albright, Chris Folds, C Dubs, Calbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Strayanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Kizada, Joshua Eckroff, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olaf Hope, Patrick Markey, Brad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor 82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. Special extra thanks to my 16-bit supporters. Those include Bill Spear, Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vebke, John Morrison, happy birthday, John, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Von Drasic, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. So I did not read the whole novella, but apparently it's not as good as the game. Uh, but again, mm, thank you, Amazon. <laughs>